Good morning, everyone. I'm a very happy member of a worldwide fellowship called Al-Anon, and my name is Tina. And it is a joy to come back to this wonderful state of Nebraska, particularly home for me two different times, um, here in this lovely city called Omaha. When I uh, got the news from my husband the first time that we were moving here, he said, we're being transferred to Omaha, and I said, who? It wasn't even a where, it was a who. Um, And the second time that we were transferred, um, actually my husband was transferred and I got to come along, um, I wasn't getting my way. Um, And I have discovered in this lovely program of ours that, um, well, if I didn't get my way yesterday, it's a resentment, and if I... Not going to get my way tomorrow. It's a fear, and if I'm not getting my way right now, it's an anger. And I was angry. Um, and and we moved back here, and um, it was in October. And I do not do well in cold weather. It's not one of my favorite. Uh, well, anything below 70 is not my favorite temperature. So uh, I have many layers on this morning. And I, it's wonderful. It's 50 degrees here in Omaha in November, which is just phenomenal. Um, thank you, Lord, for that. Um, we moved back. It was in October. They canceled Halloween because the snow was so deep. Remember that? First the ice, and then it just snowed and snowed. And I did. I don't look good in white. And I'm. T- it just snowed and would not. Stop. Um, and my beloved had work to do, and I, I didn't have a job, and we rented an apartment, so I didn't have a house to redo, which was mainly my work uh, in those years when we were married. I find the worst house in the best neighborhood and fix it up, and by the time he got transferred, we'd sell the house, and so I had this apartment, and we also had this little dog freckles. God love our little. Cocker Spaniel Freckles. And of course, you know, they eat and drink, which means they have to do other things. So I got to trudge the road of happy destiny with the dog often because she was old. And um, the snow just kept coming and coming, which only made me more and more angry because I wasn't even getting my way even more and more and more. And we had this lovely little apartment and you had to walk down these stairs and there was a little creek that ran alongside this apartment complex, and they had down below, on the, below these stairs were, um, I'll get to my story, just hang on. Um, there was this um, tennis court, and um, the dog was just this happy dog. I mean, she was just, ah, it's snowing, you know, it's like she didn't care. She had a coat on, for God's sake. And so I'm trudging with this dog, and I, I really did look like the Michelin Tire Girl. I had these snow boots from Kmart and a parka and you couldn't see anything but about this much and I'm crying and I'm saying why God I want to live in but I don't want to live in Omaha why am I here and I noticed a piece of trash it was right on the edge of the tennis court just a little piece of trash and my brain says pick it up and I said screw it I don't care if there's trash on the ground let the snow take care of it it's snowing and snowing and a couple hours later, the dog looks up like, uh-huh, i got to go out again. So I get the dog, and we trunch down the stairs, and I go by the creek and go by the tennis court, and the trash is still there. And I said, ha, still trashy Omaha. You can stay there as far as I'm getting more and more angry. And I go in, and I have lunch, and I'm just so, I mean, I'm having a pity party all by myself. All I needed was hats and balloons and eat lunch, and, of course, Two hours later, the dog has to go again, and we trudge down, and I'm trudging by the tennis court, and trash is still there, and the same part of my brain says, pick it up, and I said, I don't want to pick it up. I said, pick it up. I said, I want to pick it up. Just pick it up. I'll pick it up. So I picked it up. Now, there was no way humanly in God's weather at the time, because the snow was just coming down, for that still to be exposed, although the wind does not stop here. It was wet, so I mean, it would have packed on top of this. 
I don't understand it, but I picked up that piece of trash as if to say, well, show you, God, you're going to make me miserable here. And it was a torn piece, but it was a card that had the serenity prayer on it. And um, since that time, the serenity prayer has meant even more to me. Now, I have not found it necessary on a continuous basis to... um, manage someone else, attempt to manage someone else's life at the expense of my own life since January 6th of 1982, and for that I know you and I are both very grateful. And I will tell you that I was, most of you know my story, um, so I may kind of wander off from time to time, but who cares, it's just us chickens. Um, I was, uh, and I really want to stop one minute and thank you for your beautiful, beautiful talk last night, John. It was just wonderful. Uh, I, too, am a, from a coal mining family. I'm a coal miner's daughter from southern Illinois, and um, that high sulfuric coal, and many, many generations before me. Um, good blue-collar family. Um, Italian descent on my father's side, and... Um, My mom and dad married when they were pretty young and got divorced when I was extremely young. I was about six or seven. I can't remember which. And I'm not good enough with math to care. Um, And yet with that, one of the neat things is we lived in a small enough community. Within five miles, my mom moved to her hometown. My father lived five miles from that. Both my parents are only children. But the next generation before that, were many aunts and uncles, and they loved us, my sister and I. I have one sibling. So there was always that feeling of security, even though there was separation, and for that I'm extremely, extremely grateful. Um, I had much more influence on my mother's side of the family because I did not spend much time with my father's side of the family, and uh, I usually tell this, and I will again, that there was my great-grandmother who was a very devout spiritual woman. There was my grandmother who was a very angry woman, but had a sense of adventure that everyone would love. And then there was my mother who, God love her heart, just lived in this small little box called fear and still does live there. Um, And those three women primarily influenced my life. And they influenced me in wonderful, diverse ways. Um, My great-grandmother, being the Christian woman that she was, um, taught me and gave me a wonderful gift. We spent, because of the divorce and everything, we spent many, many weekends with my grandmother on my mother's side or my great-grandmother. And with that... um, my grandmother, we, she'd wake up on Sunday morning. She'd make us fossy cakes. I don't know if you know what those are, but we have fossy cakes in the morning. And then we would, uh, she'd say, "Well, which church you want to go to today?" And she taught me that God did not mean building. God meant here. God meant giving rather than getting. That the theme of this conference is wonderful. Um, and she got mad at a few of them when, in different churches when they bicker about things, so she just would go to different ones. So it was great because I got a, a very diverse experience as far as religion. Then there was my grandmother, who was angry ever since her father burned to death. He uh, loaned out some kerosene to a man. He was of Indian descent, and he was known as the Indian in town who had problems with fire water. And uh, they paid him back in gasoline, and this handle had exploded, and he burned to death. My grandma tried to put him out, and he lived for, I think, about a week, and then finally died, and she never got over that. And she basically went through life angry, and and she um, hated God, and she lived with that woman who said that God was everything, and so, boy, there was a mm-hmm, uh, diversity there. Um, and then there was my mom, who, God love her, she was product of an alcoholic, drug addict, gambling father who kidnapped her, and they had their own little story, and she's not here to tell it, so I'm not going to linger. And each one of those women brought into my life wonderful things. I'll give you an example uh, that is still one of my favorites. My great-grandmother taught me about sex. It's a beautiful thing God has created, intended for pleasure. 
But you have to wait for the right man, and you have to be properly married, and then God will reveal the truth to you. My mother, well, I'll start with my great-grandmother and then my grandmother. My grandmother told me that it was the greatest thing in the whole wide world, that if you found a man that could really please you, your rockets would go off in your head and your eyes would roll back in your head and God, you'd never find anything better than that. And she would also teach me things that women needed to know what to do and God, my mother would have just died if she would have heard any of those conversations. And my mother, bless her heart, always said that sex was filthy and dirty. Save it for the one you love. (laughs) I liked my grandmother's idea the best. And so with that, I, like I said, my sister and I grew up and we did have, we had a lot of, lot of different things going on. My grandmother needed a lot of center of attention and she demanded it. Anger will do that to a person. You know, if you have a tube of toothpaste, you squeeze it, toothpaste comes out. You have an angry person, you squeeze them, anger comes out. You know, love's inside, love will come out. It's just kind of the way it goes. Um, seems like a law of nature. Um, my mother remarried. She married a wonderful, exciting, adventurous alcoholic. So different from my father, and um, there's a lot of that story that I'm just going to leave alone. I can tell you there were craziness, insanity, violence, all those fun things, and that wasn't working out, but his mother had money, and God, uh, you know, the mother-in-law to be looked at my mom and says, I'm so glad you're here, which means that if you have an alcoholic son, is you're going to get him for a while rather than me. <laughs> and so... Um, that lasted for a while, but boy, I'll tell you, it was nuts, and as nuts as he was, my mother was more nuts. I mean, she was just, she couldn't control him, so she decided to work on my sister and I. And we went through things like what we call the ballet of the flashing knives, which meant that my mother would threaten us with flashing the knife around, I'm going to kill myself if you kids don't behave, and we were good kids, so I, you know, and she'd put it underneath her blouse, and the buttons would fly across the room, and it was just very theatrical. I think it's one of the reasons I love theater still to this day because we we lived it in our house so, so much. But my mom also, she taught me many wonderful principles. Before the sun goes down, if you two are fighting, you're going to make up. And to this day, my sister and I still live that principle. It's wonderful. I remember when we were you know, middle teenage years, uh, we were always fighting with one another, and she said she couldn't stand anymore because she was going to lose her mind, and so she got us boxing gloves, which I still think was a wonderful idea. It kind of took the steam out of it, but we just punched the like heck out of one another for a while. Um, so, I mean, my mom had a lot of wonderful things, but she didn't have a lot of tools to bring to it. I mean, she came from an alcoholic family. She came from a mother who was very, very angry that got married when she was 16 and just, just you know, went after the world. And then she had this grand, great-grandmother, my great-grandmother, her grandmother, that just loved her to pieces. So there was this, I call it the box. We lived in this box. Now, everybody had their own box inside the box, but you weren't outside, you couldn't get outside the big box. And getting outside the big box was just not heard of. One, my grandmother's brother, my uncle, got outside the box, and he was still loved. But he was outside of the box. So you never trusted anything that Uncle Bob said because he didn't ever understand because he was out of the box. Well, I'll tell you what. My box was getting pretty small by this time because my sister had gotten married. She's gone. The alcoholic is left for the umpteenth time, but the final time. And guess who's left in the box with her mother? And I'll just tell you, the box was getting pretty slow. So I went out and found a young innocent boy and convinced him that I had that he, what he wanted and he should go to any lengths to get it and we got married and oh gosh I got outside the box and you think when you get outside the box that you're going to be fine but you really take the box with you because you don't have the principles of which this program has given me to get how to deal with the box um so now you've got their box and your box, which is in their box, but you're outside of the box, and so now you've got another box, and you've added somebody else to the box. So now you've got all these boxes, and you don't know what to do, and you're trying to teach him the principles for which you have, which are not tools for living. I despise people in Al-Anon that says, I'm a survivor. Hell, I 
I want to survive. I want to live. You know, there's more to this. Thank God that we've got a book that says From Survival to Recovery. And, you know, recovery is a wonderful thing. I'll, I'll tell you a short little story on this one, too. Um, I want, In the big book, it talks about the first 100 who had recovered, the recovered alcoholics. And I had people in meetings that had a real problem with the recovered part of the, re, the, the program. But they have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. We have that. It's a gift. It's a promise. Do these 12 simple things. Practice these 12 simple things in your family. You're, you're going to be promised this. But even if they don't get it in the family, if you practice these 12 simple little things, you can recover from a hopeless state of mind and body. It was not too many years ago I got a burn on my arm from a pot of boiling water. And it was real bad. It was a bad situation with a family member who was going in the hospital. I wasn't paying close attention. I was making a meal for the family. I pulled it off and the steam wrapped around. And you know, if you get a bad enough burn, you don't know that it's a burn. Well, I went to a meeting that night because it's pretty high tension stuff going on in the family. And uh, God works. The ER nurse is sitting next to me. She said, where'd you get that burn? I said, I got it tonight. She said, uh, come on, you're going with me. And she took me to the emergency room. And I had a third degree burn, didn't know it. And I mean, they had to scrape it and clean it, and they said you're going to have a you're going to have a horrible scar, and this is not going to you're not going to recover from this, and you know the aloe vera and the poly, whatever, pathane or whatever I don't know. They put all this stuff on me, and told me if you will apply this stuff daily, it will get better. Well, I can tell you that I did everything that they have. I do not have a scar. I am a recovering burn victim. So I have I have recovered. From my burn, so I am a recovered burn victim, but I'm not burn proof. And to me, that's what it means in the big book. That's what it's talking about. We have recovered from this craziness that we lived in, but we're not bulletproof from life. You talked about that beautifully last night. That the, we do continue to live. So I married this young man, and it's not going real well. And so I'm thinking divorce and everything. And I'll just tell you that whole sex thing that my mother had told me about, you know, well, <laughs> on that one. And I did not understand my grandmother's theory at all with this young man. But uh, that was all right. And I guess my grandmother was right that it was just a sacred thing and all this stuff. But then one night happened to go to a party. It's long gone with what I had with that person and. I walked into this bar and there he stood. All his glory. Rockets were going off in my head. I hadn't even touched him yet. I thought, oh my God, Grandma, you're right. This is it. We were lust with potential. Um, I, it was just an incredible situation. There was no doubt in my mind that this was God's intervention. Later on, my first sponsor said that the horns on his head fit the holes in my head, which was a pretty good definition at the time. And we went off on an absolute romance that um, I can just tell you was nuts. He was a raging alcoholic. He was in the last stages of his alcoholism. Now, you would think, growing up with it, when I was a kid, that some people on the normal side of the street, and there are, I want you to know, there are normal people in this world. I go to church, and this lovely, down in Florida, I mean, we're nearly dead and newly wed, there, is, uh, there are a lot of older people, but there's a lot of younger ones too, and there are normal people in this world. I'm just fascinated by them. But you would have thought that that would have, got in my mind, okay, try not to re repeat what that was, but it wasn't. It was what I believe is we recreate what we know. That's what I knew. Why wouldn't I want to recreate it? There were fun times. Quite frankly, I still thought the alcoholic was really quite a lot more fun than my mother. You know, those alanoids. You know, she's doing all that control issues. You know, you have to do this, you have to do that, all that kind of stuff. Well, it didn't matter to me. I saw him, he saw me, and God, we just had to have one another. And we played the craziest, stupidest, most insane games you can ever imagine. We played red light, green light on the first night, which meant he's fully drunk, I'm half snockered, 
were driving down Main Street in Kansas City, and the red lights or the green lights, if you got a green one, you just kept on going. You got a red one, well, just keep on going, too, and you just kept counting them. This is not normal behavior. This is not something you write home to your mother about. When I did tell my mom, I have found him, I had forgot how many of them I had told her I had found. She had been, she reminded me, oh yes, this one's probably just like the heroin addicted disc jockey that you told me about, that you were sure you could help him also. So when, and it just wasn't a real good introduction, but anyway, and there's more to the story, but I am speaking from the podium and I will not repeat some of the things that my mother did say at that time. It's out of love, I'm sure. Well, there's, there's craziness going on, and it's, it's just, uh, I did not notice that drinking was getting in the way. But my beloved did. And he called me one day and said, can we meet? And uh, we both lived in Kansas City at the time, and God, I love that city to this day. Um, I met him at our special rendezvous place. It's where all the gays met. We thought we'd be safe. Um, well... We just didn't want the world to know we were dating. It was, well, never mind. Anyway, um, and he, he looked at me very seriously and said, Tina, I'm an alcoholic, and I have to go to AA. I've got to find out some way to, to help me with my drinking. It's destroying our relationship. Boop! Right on my head. I, honest to God, swear to you, I thought, How is the auto club going to help him with this? I did not know what AA was. Unlike you, I did not have that spiritual divine intervention that said, Alcoholics Anonymous, all I could think of was AAA. And I shook my head because I wanted to be so green. And he says, and there's meetings that I'm going to start going to. and, And he did. And I learned to hate AA. We went from having romantic, fun, wonderful evenings to talking about the big book. (laughs) When I would want to complain about my family, he'd say, oh, honey, you've just got to let go and let God. (laughs) I'll let go and let God you. Well, then I heard there were women at AA meetings. Well, this is my turf here. So I found out there were open AA meetings and that I could go. And so a friend of his, dear Daryl, said, I will pick you up. And he had, you know, the little drunk cars. He had a drunk Vega. And it was like Fred Flintstone. It had holes in the floorboard, you know. Um, And the muffler was shot. And so he pulled up next to my car and says, because I can't hear him, and I'm, so, and I'm thinking, I'm not getting in that car. I said, so I'll follow you. And so I followed him to a seedy place at Kansas City. It was downtown somewhere. Um, and it was in a, they held a meeting in a bar. And um, just never made any sense. I, I'm wrong. I've got, I got a, that was the second meeting that I went to. The first meeting that I went to was at the Young Matrons Hall. That's right. And Daryl and his wife and Bill and I went to that meeting. God, how could I have forgotten that? It was like this. They had these chairs just like you all are sitting in. They had this little stage and they had the curtains drawn and everything. And they had the little podium right like this one is and everything. And I was sitting there shaking as hard as a leaf. And I thought they were going to pull the drapes and we were going to see the alcoholics back here. <laughs> I didn't know if we were going to judge them, you know, like, very alcoholic. The German judge gives you a 10. And what I heard was, I heard love and reality unlike I'd ever heard in my life. And I wept, and I shook, and I cried, and I didn't know what had happened to me. And then the, that, that was on a Friday, on a Sunday, Daryl took me to that seedy little meeting. And there was a little bitty man, he's in a big meeting in the sky now, Homer, little tiny guy, 
looked like a bookie. Uh, probably was a bookie. Um, Homer had that ability of loving people into the fellowship. That first group was so wonderful. God, they just loved me so much. And every once in a while, because I'm, I'm a member of the AA fellowship, you know, I didn't know that I could say that as a title, but it was an open meeting, and they would say, you know, speaker would introduce a topic, and then they would start and raise your hand. Hi, I'm Reggie. I'm an alcoholic. And he would say his little deal, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I don't have a title. I don't know what I am. I'm not an alcoholic. And somebody would say an Al-Anon, and I'd think, what's that? I don't know what that is. And so after the meeting, you know, I'd shake my way through it because, you know, I didn't know that you were supposed to. I wasn't picking up on the hand-raising thing. And Homer would, every once in a while, you look, he looked like he was sleeping, but he'd call on somebody, and they would share. Um, and they had such profound things. I remember, remember Pete, Pete H. Hi, my name's Pete H. My brother graduated from Penn State, and I graduated from the state pen. And we'd all, ha, <laughs> And, of course, you know, I'm just, I, 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 what am I going to say? And every once in a while, Homer would call on me, and I'd say, Hi, I'm Tina. And then I would say something very loudly profound. Um, at least at the time I thought it was. And every week they would tell me about Al-Anon. They'd give me a little piece of literature. One woman said, if you want to go to a meeting, I'll, I'll, I know of a lady that goes to this Wednesday night meeting. So I'll tell you the truth. I went to Al-Anon for a title. <laughs> so that I could keep going to open AA meetings and introduce myself. Little did I know when I went to that first meeting that Al-Anon would go. They had a first step meeting, took me in the back room, and I came apart at the seams. They talked about alcoholism. They made me understand for the first time about the concept of a disease. For the first time, I could look back at just a glance at what my childhood was really like. And it opened the door in that realizing that we recreate what we know to help me to start to know something different. So that when we do learn something new, that we can create that in our lives, which is called recovery, versus recreating the insanity of the disease itself. There was a young man last night here in the front row that said, Ooh, now we all of And, uh, of course, he was in AA. And... Since he's not here this morning, I don't think, or even if he is, I'd like to open this up to him. I have a personal theory. Now, this is not conference approved. Take what you like and leave the rest on this one. I think those are people who probably can use Al-Anon. Because there's not a one of you in AA that aren't affected by another alcoholic. Hell, I've been to your meetings. I'd need Al-Anon. And I don't mean that in a bad sense. I really don't. But there are times it happens in Al-Anon, it happens in AA. I, I'm Virginia, and I have been in Al-Anon for 30 years. Never needed the steps, still don't need it now. Oh, that's appealing. <laughs> the sinless, blue-haired little old woman sitting in the back pew never wanted to have a good time in her life and never will again. <laughs> That is not recovery. We have the joy of living. And it started for me in January. And it falls on the church year on Epiphany. And for me it was my Epiphany. And it has been for almost 20 years now. My husband worked for a company that bopped us around different places. And I um, didn't know what God had intended for me. But I guarantee you this, don't shortchange yourself. Trust the process. I didn't have a sponsor. I went on a hunt. He had one. I didn't like him. He was a confirmed bachelor. I wanted to get married. He sat in the crown glory chair in that first meeting that we went to. They had all the little chairs that were uncomfortable. And then they had these soft chairs of which Aaron sat in one. He was God. I called him the sponsor monster because whatever he said, he did. 
And one of them was that he said was no change for the first two years. Well, I went into competition. You're not going to win out on this baby. Now, I'm in recovery, which means that at that point, I'm lying in the seat and I'm trying my best. But I'm still aggravated at how much AA is taking up in his life. What about me? You know, you work the steps over a weekend, for God's sakes. Don't you think I'm well enough for me to be the center of attention of your life? So I notice that he's working the steps, and he's just finished his fifth step, and he's basically walking on water and telling me how glorious this is. And so I thought, well, I've got to catch up. So I went on this hunt to find a sponsor, and I asked this woman, will you be my sponsor? She said, I'd love to. I did not get her phone number. She never came back to the meetings. So I waited a couple of weeks. I asked another woman, excuse me, would you be my sponsor? It's done here. Still didn't get her phone number. She never came back to the meetings. This went on for two or three or four different people. And so I found one. I wanted her. They said, get somebody who has what you wanted. I liked Peggy. She was married and happy. That's all I wanted. Going to the meeting on Wednesday, I'm going to ask her to be my sponsor. She had a heart attack. How dare she? Didn't she know I needed her as a sponsor? She's not at the meeting. So I just ran up to Marie. Oh, Marie, you've been there every week that I've been there. Marie, would you be my sponsor? Well, sure, I'd love to. I said, will you listen to my fifth step? Well, sure, why not? What day would you like to do? I said, how's Friday? Now, it's Wednesday. I've not worked one through four. (laughs) But I am going to catch up. Friday will be fine. So I went to Marie's house, gave her my careful, immoral inventory. Marie never came back. Never saw her again. I didn't care. Didn't matter. I had caught up. I had six now. Doing the cards, I'm ready to play. Well, by this time, my beloved had come up with the idea of, let's go to a conference. What's a conference? Well, they're going to have AA and Al-Anon speakers and everything. There's going to be a dance. I did not want to go. I mean, it was like brain surgery, cold enema, AA conference. That was, the, that was my preference list. <laughs> but when I found out there was going to be a dance, and our first ha-ha date, where we were mm-hmm, falling in love with one another, we had danced, and I knew he was a good dancer, and by golly, I wasn't going to trust any of you for... Those were my dances. So I said, sure, honey. So we went to this conference, and I heard a woman speak, and she was my first Al-Anon speaker that I ever heard, and I went up to her afterwards. She just touched something. You know how that happens. And I said, honey, would you be my sponsor? She said, well, I live in a different state. Well, I'll tell you what, I learned she lived in a different state after that, too. Um, She says, you know, where are you in the steps? I said, well, I just... Finished step five. Oh, well, I didn't know you were that far along in the steps, so sure, that'll be fine. So we started corresponding after the conference and everything, and she wrote to me, You don't know you're from a hole in the ground about these steps. We're starting at one. And I thought, What in the name of God have I got myself into? She got my address. She's going to come get me if I don't do what she told me. So I was willing. I just, but there was another side. I wanted what she had. She was telling from the podium that night things I wouldn't have told of that dog, and she didn't seem to be bothered from it. She had a freedom about her that just seemed to kind of go and flow. And so, um, I'm living with a gal at the time. She is severely depressed, badly. She, her former husband that she finally divorced finally came and told her that he had to marry the woman that he'd been having an affair with for 10 years because, well, she had had a kid 10 years ago, but she had just given birth to twins, and he thought maybe he should go help her. We're a really, very, very sound home that I was living in. And um, the other girl was, she was dating a gambling addict at the time, which was adding to the spice of our life in that home also. And by this time, Bill and I are toying with the idea of marriage, but you know that big M word, oh, it's right up there, the big C word, which most people think of in normal worlds as cancer, but ours is commitment. Oh, big word. What are you doing with that? It's a cauldron pot, commitment and alcoholism. Not a blue most of you would want to drink. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm 
okay, fine, fine, I'll work these steps and everything. And, and this woman really was very demanding, and thank God she was. She said, honey, you cannot successfully warm a seed in Al-Anon, not work these principles, and not take all those boxes that you've been collecting for all these years into this marriage. Do you want a chance for it to work or not? And I did, because I had a light of recovery. There was the flame had been lit. My pilot light right there, you know, right behind your navel had been struck. So I listened to her. And she helped me to work through steps one through five. And then we worked on step six. And by that time, the gambling act and the other roommate had left. And my roommate, who was severely depressed, was having a terrible time. And, of course, even though you've worked through the steps, the husband-to-be has got some excess boxes that he's bringing into the relationship as well. And uh, it's a week before our wedding. And we had made a commitment. Um, and it's the morning of the week before our marriage, and my beloved calls up and says, I can't do this. I said, you can't do what? He says, I can't get married. Now, he had been transferred at the time. I said, I have shipped you my furniture. Isn't that the right thing to say? <laughs> he says, well, I can't help that. I can't do this. I said, well, um, what are we going to do about this? He said, I don't know. And I hung up the phone and I told my roommate, she says, oh, Tina, everything's going to work out. I said, don't tell me what's going to work out in my life. Look at your own life. And, of course, I felt like, I mean, hell. I just was, much worse can get. So I got in the car and I said to her, Donna, I'm sorry. She says, Trust me, your life's going to work out just fine. So I got in the car and I drove down the road and I said, go back. Now the little voice that told me to pick up the, the, the snow thing was not the little voice that was speaking the loudest that day. The loudest voice, because I didn't have enough recovery, was still the old voices that came from the old boxes. Go back. You owe her this. I said to her, I was sorry. Because in our family it was, I'm sorry, 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 so that you would give me absolution, and then I would be forgiven, and the whole world would be fine because you were God and I was nothing. But there was a still little small voice that said, You have told her you were wrong. Go to work. I have a plaque in my house that says, Truth speaks quietly. And I listened to that quiet little voice. And I went to work, and I got a present from a girlfriend for our wedding. And I went where God and I meet a lot. I went to the bathroom. And I just sat out on the stool, and I said, What am I going to do? What am I supposed to do? I said, Go to work. So I did, and I kept getting phone calls. My roommate had not showed up. I looked at my boss. I said, I think she's taken her life. Later on that evening, I went home, and sure enough, she had. And Donna had found her peace. When the policeman came, I had, of course, lost it. I mean, that was a dear friend of mine that I'd lived with for a number of years. And God sent me a gift to the policeman because I said, I should have gone back. And he said, honey, she'd made up her mind. She'd have taken you with her. And I believe that to be true. And that little voice that I learned to live with at that point when I found her that day was the power that is greater than me that has given to me what no other human power has ever given me and no other human power has ever taken away and for that I am eternally grateful it was a week later my sponsor said I told my boss what was going on. I said, I may have to come back and become a teller rather than head of personnel. He says, don't worry, baby, you'll always have a job. And I showed up at the wedding. I didn't know, didn't tell any of my family whether what was going on, and I didn't know if he was going to. He showed up as if nothing had happened. <laughs> Not good to want to kill him on your wedding day. <laughs> 
Hi, honey. Ready to get married? Now, I'm not listening to him. I am so angry. Do you know what hell I have been through this past week? And it was like, I'm here. Aren't you happy? So, I don't know what the minister asked me. I promised God only knows what. But we went through it, and unbeknownst to me, he had these roses. He had three roses. He had, he gave it to me. He says, now give this to my mom. And I'm going to give one to your mom. And I thought, what the hell has he been doing? Reading Brides Magazine while I'm dying for this past week? I'm not real happy. You know, you take the rose, you go over to your mother-in-law. Yeah, welcome to the family, Betty. takes one over and gives one to my mother, kisses her on the cheek. Oh, Bonnie, I'm so glad to marry you. And then he takes a third one and gives it to his daughter. And in the silence of the church, think of a small word, it's a four-letter word, starts with F, ends with K. You know the word. I'm going to say fire truck. Instead, same thing, it starts with F, ends with K, it's just a little longer. In the quietness of the church, my grandmother, the angry woman, who's still angry, adventuresome, but still angry, says, Where's my fire truck and rose? Hey, <laughs> missed a good one with my grandma. She, she'd have been a great member. And my mother said, Mom? I don't care. That little so-and-so there got a fire truck and rose. I want to have a fire truck and rose myself. <laughs> and my mother says, Mom, here's mine. I don't want your fire truck and rose. I want my own fire truck and rose. And I looked at Bill and said, Welcome to the family. <laughs> Um, I have many grandma stories, but we're, we're shortening up on time here. So I will just tell you that uh, I was a little, uh, I, I, was, I was bent is what it was. I, you can't go through a suicide of a dear friend like that and not knowing if you're going to get married or not get married. And thank God for the fellowship and, and thank God for working the steps and a strong sponsor who said, Honey, he's scared. He's had a failed marriage before. He doesn't want to hurt you. That's what it is. He doesn't want to hurt you with the past. He wants to start anew. And that was what was going on. What I didn't know was the woman that I'd asked to sponsor me lived in a little town in um, Arkansas and my husband got transferred to that very town. So I got to go along with the ride and have a home group and a sponsor that was waiting for me in a time that was really tragic. And it started my adventure of real recovery. It got into service work. It got into really working the steps and really understanding. And you know what I've come to conclude? We think we, well, maybe you don't, but I've heard a lot of people that I sponsor in particular, and I did at least. I thought I'd had this. I thought I was a character defect. Um... I thought it would, you know, I had these multitudes of thousands of things that were just bad wrong with me. Um, and I really only have one. And it manifests itself in the most unbelievable ways. I mean, a multitude of different ways. And it comes out as fear and anger and all those, you know, just things that we, that we do find in inventories. But the one thing is this. Reliance on self versus reliance on God. That obedience to the unenforceable. It's a choice. When we were living here, I uh, was telling my brother Mike a story this morning. I went to a Bible study here in town and um, there were 300 women of us and we're all like, and the um, lady who was coming in to be the lecturer in that morning said, 
Isn't it, ladies? She had this huge box, and she says, I have a present. Would any of you like it? And total silence. This is a miracle. 300 women. <laughs> she just stood there. Finally, someone about where Cindy's speaking setting said, I'll take it. And she said, come and get it. She said, would you like to unwrap it? And she did. And it was this gorgeous Waterford crystal bowl. I mean, it was, it was a really expensive gift. So the girl took it back and everything. We all hated her. <laughs> she goes on with the lecture, and she gets about ten minutes into it, and she goes, oh, yes, um, we're talking this morning about the gifts of God. Just like that present, ladies, and I'll offer it to you and this morning, both men and women. I have a gift for you, God says every day. Would you like it? It's free. You have to want it. How did you, the lady says, how did you ladies feel this morning? Did you think, what price do I have to pay? Is there a gag gift in there? Am I going to have to go up and get it? If it's a joke, am I going to be embarrassed? Am I going to be required to do anything? And then somebody comes along and they take it and you think, that's it. There's never enough. There's never been enough for me. There never will be. Never and always are God's word. Try to remember that. She said, and then when the one woman wanted it, how did you feel? Were you resentful to her? I can just tell you, ladies, there's always enough. It's abundant. It's here for your taking. And I've been living by that principle, and there is. It's endless. God's grace is so huge. There is no way humanly possible that you can have the effects from the disease of alcoholism from a little bitty kid and carry it in today to the nutsy things that we were doing that were just insane. To have the grace of God to come into our lives without all we have to do is say, okay, and try to choose little bites at a time. That's how you eat the elephant. Can't swallow that puppy hole. We got transferred from Little Rock to Omaha. God had a fabulous sponsor. She taught me how to play. I got, excuse me, I got two brothers and I got more sisters and I know what to do with. And four years later, we got transferred to St. Louis where a former, well, it was the last amends on my list. It was a woman who knew I'd had an affair with her husband and she hated my guts. And in the big book, it talks about praying for those other people that you resent. And by that time, I had resented her. you turn that page back in the big book it talks about that you work the first proposals the first eight proposals first then if it doesn't work you pray for them and I worked those first eight proposals and I didn't know what else to do so I started praying and I prayed that she would receive what I wanted because that's what my sponsor there told me to do so I did I started praying I came back and I said it's not working she said uh what are you praying for? I said, oh, hell, prosperity, wonderful children, all that stuff. She said, honey, you're praying for everything but what you want. I said, well, what is it that I want? And she said, you want forgiveness. So for 21 days, I prayed that would God would grant her the forgiveness for not being the whole woman that she thought she never was to hold her husband. And I prayed that instead of forgiveness in this way, that it would be reversed. And I was on a plane with that woman, and for the first time I saw her in a different light. I saw her as a wounded woman, not someone out to get me. And I knew to the degree of what I had done and how wrong it was. And I became willing to go to any lengths to make it right and there's nothing more powerful than to look at someone else straight in the eye and say what I did was wrong hurtful and unnecessary 
And if I could do it differently, I would. I've been with that lady several times since then. She still does not like me, but the forgiveness was received for me. I can't explain it any other way. I just know that's how it worked. We moved from St. Louis back here to Omaha and all that snow, and God gave me another wonderful sponsor. And I thank God for each one of you every day of my life because it changed my life. I wanted so desperately desperately to live in Florida because my heart was there on a beautiful little island called Sanibel. I loved it then and I love it now. But I had work to do and it was about my mom. And I thank God for helping me work through that. My mom had a massive stroke three years ago. My great-grand, or excuse me, my grandmother had died, and my mom had found that one way to keep my grandmother's anger pacified was to dedicate her her life to her to try to make her happy. That doesn't work, folks. My mom sacrificed her life totally for my grandmother. When my grandmother died, my mom lost it. She had no life. She did not know what to do. And her health kept getting worse and worse. Her blood pressure was 200 over 100 at all times. And finally it caught up with her. She had a massive stroke and she um, didn't die. She's living in her home. My husband and I are blessed to be able to hire people to come in and help her. And it has been one of the hardest journeys I have ever been on to maintain and live my own life. Because the old box tells me that what my mom did is what I'm supposed to do. The voices still say, go, give her everything, because that's what my mom created. Thank God I've had enough recovery to know that instead of sacrificing my life, I get to honestly give to my mother love. Huge difference. Huge difference, because I, I believe for myself, my challenge is to live a life of giving, not a life of sacrifice. The first sponsor that I had embedded in me, and so did the second one, and so did the third, and so did the fourth. Service work was important, very important, and going to a lot of conferences and being on boards and doing that thing. I was with my mom for three full months when she was uh, in rehab. I was there every day. It was back in Illinois. By this time, Dale and I did live our dream. We're living down in Sanibel. I still miss each and every one of you. I don't miss your weather, but I still miss each and every one of you. I'm dying here. Al-Anon and AA are so anonymous in southern Illinois, you couldn't be found. There is no listings. I found out that the AA meetings are all closed. There are people who will park their cars almost miles away and walk to the meeting because there are people who drive by to see who is at the meeting so they can spread these rumors in these little towns. Now, it's not all that way, but I'm dying here. I haven't had a meeting in a long time. I don't know if my mom's living or going to die. My husband's doing some political things back in our hometown. I'm trying to go back and forth and do these things and be supportive. But the light was still burning in that pilot. And I knew I had to find a meeting and I wouldn't give up. So I finally found one. And you know what? It was my mom got transferred from one hospital to another hospital. And the meeting was two blocks away I could walk. I thank God for that moving of one hospital to the next. I fell into that meeting. I mean, it was three months. I'm dying here. I am just dying. And you know how you walk in that meeting and it just... The fellowship of God living in you and you and you and you and your willingness to share that God inside of you lifted me up and I'm sitting there and I'm just crying. A guy named Kenny wrote down every meeting where it was at. Wrote down the bottom, I'll pick you up any time. And a little woman across the table said, Tina, is that you? And I said, yes. She says, Hi, it's me. Remember me? I met you at the Arkansas woman and woman. I said, no, I don't. She said, oh, honey, come on. I'll be your temporary sponsor. And that group enveloped me. There was a woman having cancer treatments that was in the fellowship, and I'd go up on the third floor when I was just having such a hard time with supporting my mom. And she, I'd hold her puke bucket, and she would console me. So I mean, you know how it works. There was a woman that worked in the pharmacy, and I'd go downstairs, and Kathy would be there and just give me that little punch. So 
What I thought was so anonymous just needed a little extra effort and a lot more prayer. And there you were, and you upheld me. Alan has taught me how to see the world differently. It's one bad day. My mom is having another stroke, and I went to tell the nurses. They came back. They're wheeling my mom out. She was hallucinating. She's seeing monkeys on the ceiling. I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is past experience with my stepfather. And so anyway, the nurses come in, and they're asking me all these questions, and they got those badges on, and it's like they're getting larger, and I don't know what she's... I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a nurse. Don't ask me these things. And I just... Al-Anon kicked in, and sometimes you just have to be creative. I stood up from the chair I was sitting in, from where they are standing. They still looked just ominous. So I stood up on top of the chair, and I looked down at them. And they said, Tina, what are you doing? I said, well, it didn't look too good down there. I thought it would look different up here. And you know what? It did. It cracked the ice, and they said, oh, Tina, please forgive us. Please forgive us. And I stepped down off of the chair. That may sound goofy, but let me tell you, that's what Alan does for me. Y'all look different up here than probably you would down there. Y'all look real good. <laughs> Life does continue. We were talking this morning. I'm going to wrap this up now. When we first moved here to Omaha, Bill's former wife sent us a housewarming gift. It was his daughter. <laughs> She was using and abusing at the time. <laughs> My dad was terminally ill, and the first week that we were here, Jenny came to live with us. My father died. We, the idiots, bought a home here in Omaha with a pool. Duh. The only kind of pool we have in Omaha is an indoor pool. Um, although we made some pretty great memories. Um, I didn't know what to do with that kid and she wouldn't get up in the morning and I'd never had children of my own Bill would call and say is she up and I'd say no we'll get her up I don't want to get her up because I didn't know if I'd go down and she'd be dead I mean I was still fresh two years from that experience with my roommate so they took her little rusty button put her in treatment and she had 10 years. She's, she never knew in 10 years whether she was alcoholic or not. Stuck in AA for those 10 years. And I kept saying, honey, just try it. It says in the book, experiment. Give it a whirl. See what happens. Well, 10 years later, she went out and had a little glass of wine. And you know what? It didn't seem to affect her. I don't know if that child's an alcoholic or not. I do know this, if she is, it isn't going anywhere. We'll escape her. But that young girl had an opportunity. She was sober for 10 years, and she got to go through all of her college, the latter part of her high school, all of college, and her master's program sober. And she got to experience that. And she, you know, she thanked us for that not too long ago. I'm convinced that if, if she is, the good Lord's right there for her. That young girl has had her first child, our first grandbaby. And we were talking this morning. Bill's mother is very ill. My mother is very ill. I'm sponsoring a woman right now who is dying. It's been an unbelievable experience. This woman's taught me how to live. She graduated college when she was 73. Phenomenal woman. She taught me how to, how to live in the elderly age versus my mother and my my mother-in-law, who are just struggling with life because they've been so badly affected by alcoholism. And now she's teaching me how to die with grace as well. But it's not dying that's, that's horrible. Dying's easy. It's that awkward in-between time where we used to live. We lived there. That's what alcoholism was. We lived in the awkward in-between time. You can't go back to being a kid, a happy kid, and you sure as heck can't pull vault into recovery. You have to walk through it. And here comes this little baby. I never understood about grandchildren, but I do now. They bring you hope. They bring, they bring you new life. When we, at our age, are starting to face our own mortality and the mortality of those that are older than us, 
Thank God for the program that gives us the grace to live our own lives and to live them with dignity and to love our parents and to appreciate this new life that's there. Alanon has given me a whole new life and I am so grateful for that. It's a joy to come back here. It's always a joy to come to Omaha. I'd just like to close with this. That one defect of character that I am sure each of you understand if you're in recovery of that dependence on God versus dependence on self. Dependence on self being the defective part. I had a coffee pot. And it had a list of where all to get the coffee pot repaired if something happened. To me it was like a meeting list. And, you know, if you break the pot, send it to so-and-so and all that stuff. But it was like going to a meeting list and you go and you can kind of get repaired. Down in the bottom was small, little, tiny print, which I personally believe is microscopically tattooed on each one of our bodies. It said, if defective, return to maker. And you've taught me how to do that. God bless you all.